All right, we are back. A couple of weeks ago, Radio Parallax was lucky to have caught up with New Zealand documentary filmmaker Michael Bana en route between uh, New York City and the Galapagos Islands, where he will be sailing um, uh, in the fall to proceed on his next documentary. Uh, Mike Bonnet talked last week about uh, his most recent documentary, Tuna Cowboys, which will be airing again on the National Geographic Channel on September 30th. During Shark Week on the Discover Channel, you may see no less than three of Mike Bonnet's previous um, efforts, Swift, Smart, and Deadly, uh, which is his first documentary done on Mako Sharks. Riddle of the Rays is another one, and Nature of the Beast. These all involve diving with and around sharks. Here today to talk more about his work is New Zealand's Michael Bana. Thanks for coming back, Mike. Oh, you're welcome. Um, you have been doing a lot of work with sharks over the years. Um, how, do, how do you become a documentary filmmaker that winds up doing the Jacques Cousteau thing? By accident. <laughs> I, I made the mistake very early on in my career of making a docu documentary about sharks and it did well and from that point on I've kind of been branded the shark documentary filmmaker okay not intentionally I believe every year they do shark week on National Geographic do they not they do they do and I have a couple of films that have screened over the years on Discovery Channel that have featured in shark week Oh, it's Discovery Channel. So you appeared in Discovery Channel and National Geographic. Yes, yeah, so I worked for Discovery's um, channels, meaning uh, Discovery Channel as well as Animal Planet, for about eight years. The uh, The last film that I made was for, for National Geographic. So you originally started out in, as a film documentarian in New Zealand? Yes. You know, I think Americans are, let's say, geographically challenged. It might be good to talk a little bit about your home country of New Zealand. You're from the North Island? I'm from the North Island. I've spent... Uh, uh, most of my life in the North Island of New Zealand, spent a, a small stint the last three years living down in the South Island as well. So uh, New Zealanders tend to travel their country pretty well. It only takes us uh, a couple of days to go from one end to the other, so it's not hard. I believe it's the size of about Colorado, I think a little bit even smaller than California, actually. Yes, it is. But uh, in the Southern uh, southern Island, we have uh, an area of Alps, which is larger than the French and Swiss Alps put together. So we have from one extreme, the Alps in the, in the south, right through to spectacular beaches in the north. Sure, you got beaches like Southern California in the north, and then in the south, it's like you're in Norway with fjords. Exactly. Yes, indeed. It's a beautiful country, it really is. And and the nice thing about it is you've only got 3.3 million people. Yep, yep. Well, we're closing on 4 million now, but oh, uh, still, it, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of open space. Yes, uh, Californians take note. Actually, uh, probably that's a bad thing for me to say. <laughs> you don't want <laughs> a million Californians packing up and going south. Oh, we get, we're getting more and more visitors all the time. I think New Zealand's one of those very clean, green areas that uh, that people are suddenly discovering and realizing that uh, they can do so much in such a short space of time there. And the other thing is, it's very cheap for Americans to travel to New Zealand. I think we're sitting at about point, uh, oh, yeah, point five eight, hmm. so uh, fifty eight cents to the dollar. We should. Uh, I, it's worth taking a minute to clarify what I think is some confusion in American minds. They they seem to mix you up with Australia all the time. Now that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> People need to know that Australians and New Zealanders are very, very competitive. We're two big sporting nations yes. and we're always at each other's throats, literally, when it comes to sport. Yes. So we get on famously, we get on famously, but they're two very, very different countries. I've, I've often heard it said that uh, the Australian is more like the American, a bit of the loudmouth, whereas the New Zealander is more like the Canadian, a little more polite and restrained. We like to think so. <laughs> what got you interested in being a documentary filmmaker? How did that happen? 
Well, I think since I was a small boy, I've always been interested in the ocean and interested in animals. I, I think, that, well, to be honest, I get on better with animals than I've got on with people all my life. <laughs> <laughs> the, the great thing about, uh, about animals is that they do what animals do. And I've had a fascination for a long time. I got into the industry initially as a photojournalist, did mm -hmm. a journalism course, spent a lot of time working in magazines, um, but uh, got tired of still images and wanted to be able to show people moving pictures that scenes and sequences as they unfold and as they happen and still for me didn't really accomplish that so I worked hard to find a way into the industry and it's a very very hard industry to get in and in with. I don't imagine they're just handing out uh, assignments to people that would like to travel around the world and go to exotic places and do fun things. No 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 <laughs> and I, I kind of picked subjects that uh, I think perhaps a lot of other people didn't want to do which was uh, made it a little bit easier for me to get in well obviously sharks Right. Um, working and diving with sharks is, is not something that everyone wants to do. No. It's a lot easier than you would think. Uh, it does have its moments, but, um, but if, you, uh, if you spend time and learn and understand the animals, it's not as hard as you would, you would expect. Well, I know you've had quite a few moments, and I'm hoping before we're done you'll tell us a little bit more about a couple of those that I, you, you've informed me of that are quite interesting. But uh, how did that jump come in? You were basically in New Zealand. You were getting into this. You did one documentary. It did well. How did that come to the attention of uh, people that were, you know, more international in scope? Well, we have, a, we have a company in New Zealand called Natural History New Zealand, which is, believe it or not, one of the biggest natural history filmmakers or wildlife filmmakers in the world. Okay. And it's a little company based down in the South Island of New Zealand. And for a long time, I did, I did a lot of work with the, uh, the domestic market, making films and uh, everything from current affairs to uh, fishing shows for the domestic market. Always wanted to crack the international market. So I just kept knocking on their door, knocking on their door, and uh, came up with a good idea for a shark documentary that had never been done before. Nobody had spent any time with these animals. What, what was that? That was a film called Swift, Smart and Deadly about okay. mako sharks. Okay. And that was, that was my first film, and it was, uh, we pitched that to Discovery Channel. They liked the idea. And uh, we set out over 12 months to make it, and it was it was a great film. I I have seen that film, and it's quite entertaining. It's gonna I, and it still shows up from time to time on television, does it not? It does, it does. Actually, I I believe one of my other films is just screened on Shark Week last week, which was a film called White Shark: Nature of the Beast, which was looking at uh, um, groupings and uh, and pack behaviour in white sharks, both in New Zealand and Australia. That was another interesting film to make. Now, I've heard it said many times that all across the world, uh, the shark is really uh, under siege and his population is uh, deteriorating. Rapidly, rapidly. We're talking about an animal, unlike fish, that breeds very, very slowly. It takes a long time to reach sexual maturity. And then when it does, it doesn't spawn like fish with thousands and thousands of eggs. Right. Uh, a lot of sharks give birth to live young. They have a gestation period similar to, to mammals. In fact, a lot of sharks give birth the same way we do with a, the young attached by an umbilical cord to the uterus. So there's some, some pretty, really? yeah, there's some pretty interesting that. things about sharks. And because they're doing that, they have a, basically they're, they're mating and, and giving birth once a year to relatively small litters. They're very easy to overfish. And the problem is a lot of countries don't have uh, quotas on sharks. It's what we call a bycatch. Yeah. Um, and things like the, uh, the shark finning operations that are happening around the world uh, are having a profound impact on shark numbers. So they just basically take sharks, pull them out, cut the fins off, dump them back in. Exactly. And a lot of species around the world now are on the endangered list. And in a lot of countries around the world now, including here in the U.S., the great white is on the endangered species list um, and is protected. So, you know, we're, we're starting to see the first, the first time that governments have started to look at sharks and think, hang on a minute, we need to do something about this. But yeah. for a lot of species, it's getting to the point where it may be too late. When I was in college, um, 
the cod fishery was apparently the most productive in the world off the coast of Newfoundland, and it's been basically wiped out by overfishing. That's right. I mean, it, it's happened in so many places around the world and continues to happen, unfortunately. Um, but we're, we're starting to wise up. The question is, are we wising up fast enough? What can we do as, as citizens in terms of like the issue? I guess don't order shark fin soup. Absolutely. I think, I think at this stage, shark products are something we should stay away from. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of um, shark products out there that have been built up to be more than they actually are. Shark cartilage, for oh, yeah. instance, as an anti-carcinogenic. Uh, product. Um, I think you need to Which get on the internet and have a look at the research on that. Complete hogwash. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, it's another excuse to kill more sharks. Right. Shark fin soup. If anyone's ever tasted shark fin soup, I mean, it's okay, but for the the damage they're doing to the environment for a sh- few shark fins, it's it's pretty hard to justify. You've been involved in a lot of efforts uh, that we talked about last week, uh, conserving tuna by being able to, to, to raise them in farms. Talk about other species, I mean, in general, about other fish. What can we do across the board to try and protect these? Well, I, th- I think we have to look at the different species that we're, that we're going out and catching and learn more about this, the, uh, the life cycles of those animals. Some fish grow incredibly fast, like tuna. So it's easy for those populations to bounce back if we allow them the opportunity to breed, if we leave alone the big breeding stock. Other species are incredibly slow to breed, and a lot of species off New Zealand, we have one called an orange ruffy, which is a deep sea fish. They found it, they fished it, and then suddenly the, there were no more fish left, and they wondered what the hell happened. And then they started doing some research on these fish, and they found that some of these fish they were catching were 100 years old. Incredibly wow. slow growing. Right. But by the time they did the research, the damage had already been done. So I think we just need to understand more about the animals before we go out there and, and start wholesale slaughtering them. Yeah, they were talking about, I guess, the Patagonian toothfish, which was, uh, I forget, it was marketed under a different name. Chilean sea bass, they pretty much, in, in, in like, in no sooner became a fad fish and it was virtually being wiped out. Absolutely. Again, a very, very slow-growing fish. And if you take that amount of that particular species out of an environment, out of an ecosystem, it's going to have profound ramifications on the other animals in that environment. And and until you take it out, you really don't know what sort of uh, what sort of effect it's going to have. They have some very big concerns about how it's affecting, uh, for instance, the uh, penguin populations in the uh, subantarctic and Antarctic regions. We're speaking with National Geographic film documentarian Michael Bana. Well, you you spend most of your time in the southern hemisphere, in the southern seas, Australia, New Zealand, I presume, in the Pacific and in Indian yes. oceans. There's been a lot of talk about going down and solving the world's the world's food problems by wholesale capturing of krill, which are small uh, shrimp animals, shrimp-like, well, a member of this shrimp family in Antarctic waters. And a lot of environmentalists have said this could be a disaster. It will be a disaster, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is where the food chain starts in those waters. There's a very short period in which the animals get an opportunity to feed. If you look at, for instance, the penguins that during those summer months have to feed their chicks in a very short period of time, fatten them up, get them to a point where they can survive on their own. The krill feeds a proliferation of small fish mm-hmm. and it's those small fish that the penguins are, are feeding on you take out the krill out of the equation the fish aren't going to grow there's not going to be those fish stocks and the penguins are going to suffer so you've, you've got to look at all of these things if you were to take the krill and farm them that's a whole different ball game because the, this is this is a great thing about today we can actually in controlled environments grow all of these animals ourselves we've been doing it on land for centuries sure. why should it be any different in the ocean 
a lot of people, there's a big controversy right now about the the farmed salmon versus the natural salmon, and a lot of people are not sort of wondering what to do because there have been some problems, I guess, maybe it's management or just poor poor management, but uh, farmed salmon have had environmental impacts of their own, which have been sometimes negative. They do, they do. And it's and it's the same problem that you have. We, we have, we have a, a problem back home at the moment with, uh, with a, a huge rise in dairy farming. Now, the dairy farming is causing a runoff in, into the rivers, and the rivers are, are dying as a result of or the um, you know the uh, the plankton and all the um, the algae is growing, flooding the rivers and killing everything off. So there are there are always going to be profound impacts on the environment if you if you have a, a lot of animals in one contained area. It's about learning how to manage that and how to deal with it. In the case of salmon farm, you get a a, a huge amount of nitrogen dropout, sure, um, and that has a, a huge effect on the floor below. If you sure. place it in an area where there's no current flow, right, it'll kill the seafloor below it. Really requires better planning than they're doing sometimes. Yes, yes. Yeah. But it's it's like any form of any form of farming it takes a little while for us to get a hold of how to do it properly. So you're quite optimistic that if they get it if they do it right, it can be done in a very green fashion. Well, we have to do it right because it is the future. Well, Michael, uh, people are fascinated with sharks um, from I think Jaws on for I mean, talk about did Jaws just do like a tremendous amount of damage by portraying sharks as these evil creatures in the sea? Well, I think they did. I think they did. A, they had more of an impact than you could ever imagine. Yeah. I mean. When you think about it, it's it, certainly in our generation, every time you go in the water, the thing that is in the back of your mind do, is, do, do, that's do. exactly right, sharks, <laughs> sharks, sharks. People are fascinated by them, but they're also deadly scared of them. Yeah. And the reality is there's not that much reason to be. I mean, here in America, I think you're about 100 times more likely to be struck by lightning sure. than attacked by a shark. Sure. And yet America, certainly Florida, has some of the highest shark attack statistics in the world. Right. And of course, when they had a few attacks, I guess last summer, it was big news. It was like, oh my God, there's just sharks everywhere attacking people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when you compare it to the amount of uh, wholesale carnage there is on our roads, sure, there, there is no comparison. Sure. And people should feel safe getting in the water because they are. Yeah. And we won't even talk about like, you know, handguns. The number of handgun fatalities versus sharks is a rather profound difference. Have a look at police don't even carry guns. Yeah, we should talk about well, that. That's a topic for another day someday, but hopefully we can we can do that one. It, it is sort of funny in spite of, you know, we all have this great fear in the back of our mind, as you say. I don't think it, it, cross, it, it must cross the mind of anyone swimming out in the ocean. And yet I was amused um, a few years back to be in your general vicinity, well, it was Tahiti. And one of the tourist attractions was the daily shark feed. <laughs> Where tourists, including a lot of fat people with snorkels and, and like masks they would give you from the hotel, were dumped off the boat. And there was basically one small rope separating people from the sharks who every day knew they were going to be fed and would come in and would be snatching these things out of hands of people. And everyone was sort of benignly watching it like it was a spectator sport. So there was this great disconnect between the deadly shark and, oh, isn't that cool? I think that's very much the way. People... People need to realize that sharks are pretty selective in the way way in which they come in and feed. And we've spent a lot of time, you out of uh, Marco, Swift, Smart and Deadly, yeah. would have seen us hand-feeding mako sharks. I mean, right. that's it's pretty unique. But it also shows you that they're a lot safer than you would think. Right. They're, they're selective. They know what they want. They they know what they're feeding on. There are times when they make mistakes. There are times when they when they don't make mistakes. Yeah. And uh, the, the old analogy that... Uh, that we taste like three-day-old pizza, and that's why great whites spit us out after biting first, is 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 absolute rubbish. Great whites think we taste just fine. It's it's just an attack strategy they have. They have all their sensory systems are around um, the the top of their head, and when they make a strike, a lot of their prey items, if they realise what's going on, 
could inflict some serious damage. A white shark loses one of its eyes, and it only needs to be scratched to lose it. Um, it's, it's history. It'll die. So they're, they're very, very protective. So what they do is they come in and they do a major strike on the, on the prey, try and do a disabling bite, and then they leave the prey alone, theoretically waiting for it to die. The only right. problem with us is that there's usually somebody else around. As soon as you scream, they pull you out of the water, much to the shark's dismay. But if you were a seal, all your mates would be on the rocks watching. <laughs> no, no, there's no other seal would be silly enough to go out and try and rescue you. And I guess out in the Farallons here, we have quite a great white shark breeding ground right off our coast of San Francisco. Yes, there, there, is, there is a number of hot spots around the world in which the Farallons is one of them. And these are sites that sharks have been coming to for centuries for feeding opportunities. The sharks aren't there all of the time. They're off cruising, but there are particular times of the year when, when the, uh, the mammals are there grouped up that, uh, that they come in to feed. And uh, I've done a lot of work in one of the South Australian sites, which is, has a huge amount of mature sharks like the Farallons. And then there's another site in South Africa, which is smaller sharks, but again, large, large numbers of them. Well, Michael, what, as someone who's worked around sharks making documentaries for, for 12 years, um, we know there's a danger. And yet, a lot of times, it's a very benign thing. How do we make, how do we make that critical distinction between what's entertainment and, uh, and a dangerous situation? Well... Yeah, sharks are an interesting animal to work with. You've, they're a bit like dogs. If you were to confront a dog that's, that's growling at you that mm-hmm. wants to have a go, if he senses fear whatsoever, he'll have a shot at you. Right. But if you hold your ground and you don't show any fear, eventually he'll back down. And sharks are very similar most of the time. So it's the, it's the person who's panicked in the water, get me out of here, who the shark goes, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. And these animals have incredible senses. They're able to... They, they can sense very, very weak electrical signals uh-huh. in your body so that their electroreception sense, which is one we don't have, allows them to detect the slightest change in the way in which you're, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking or your metabolic rate or your heart rate. And as soon as that changes, they see that and sense that in all the animals that they attack. So panic is one of those things that says, hey, I'm in trouble. And that to a shark is, hey, I can eat this. So first advice, don't panic. Don't panic. Don't panic. Always face the animal. Always face the animal and uh, and back away in a slow, controlled manner. But if you uh, if you turn and try and run, you'll have a go every time. And which are the sharks that make you nervous when you're out there? Oh, there's a couple. There's a couple. Um, top of the list, great whites, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, um, have you had encounters with great whites? I've had a lot of encounters with great whites. Most of them in the cage. We've had one encounter outside of the cage, and uh, it was one of those occasions where you think, that was a really stupid thing to do. Well, with that kind of preface, you by all means must tell us what went down in that circumstance. Uh, in that particular case, we were testing a new shark deterrent. Okay. And we were working with a couple of smaller white sharks, about the 12-foot mark, and the deterrent was working incredibly well. Okay. What was um, the deter- deterrent? There's a, a new type of electronic deterrent called a shark shield, which is made by an Australian company. Very, very effective. It really does work. And we've tested it all over the world on pretty much every species of shark. And it's it hasn't failed us yet. We were experimenting with a new model, um, working with some smaller sharks, and we had a large shark come out of nowhere while we are outside of the cage. How, how large? About 17 feet. That's large? It's getting up towards the three-ton mark. <laughs> so uh, this would be larger than a Cadillac? It's about as big as a Cadillac. She okay. was, yeah, 17 feet long. Well, and, and yeah, a Cadillac would be about 18 feet long. Okay, yeah. all right, more or less a Cadillac. All right. <laughs> a little heavier. Only with teeth. With teeth, big teeth, <laughs> lots of teeth. And uh, she basically came in from out of nowhere, ate the fish we were using as the control in our experiment, 
and then turned around and came at us. And my friend managed to get back to the cage while I held my ground so he could run. Right. And, uh, and rolled right over the top of me. And uh, as I said, I, I, I work with a very, very big camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is, that's, my, that's my safety margin. So I used it to buffer the shark over the top of me. And as soon as I was in the blind spot behind the shark, I used her and her shadow. I mean, it's a bit like trying to turn a, a, a Cadillac as well. So yeah. they're very unmaneuverable. So I was able to stay behind her until I could get to the cage and so get you, out you of there. You had a bit of a bullfight action going. You, the Toro had made the pass and you were now... Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, I had you, one and, thing on my mind, yeah. get to that cage now. So you're pretty sure that the shark had bad intentions? Uh, hard to tell. Hard to tell. Yeah, but why take a chance? Why take a chance? <laughs> why take a chance? Yeah. <laughs> And but you but through that whole situation you have to remain calm. If you show any fear whatsoever, then you could seriously have a problem because sure. there were other sharks in the area as well. Sure. Once I got on the cage, then I panicked. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael Bonner, thank you so much again for talking about what you do. You're welcome. Thanks, Doug. And at some point when you're back in California, you need to come back on the show again. I will. All righty. Well, we appreciate very much Michael Bonner coming on the show to talk about uh, what he does. Uh, a lot of his effort is devoted toward promoting green solutions to harvesting fish. I would refer you also to sciencenews.org uh, to look up an article that appeared in Science News Magazine about um, the, the crisis facing marine ecosystems. There is a picture that shows a 19, circa 1935 catch off of Nova Scotia of bluefin tuna, the same ones that Mike documented in his, uh, in his work, Tuna Cowboys. These fish are gigantic, and it explains how uh, fish stocks sank below their maximally productive sizes as fisheries hauls continue to rise. So the effort that, um, such as the one that Mike outlined in his last documentary, Tuna Cowboys, to not take the most productive fish is something that, well... As he says, we just need to do. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM.